Well, good morning again. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. I've been looking forward to getting back into this passage and continuing to unpackage this wonderful segment of uh, of this epistle. It's all wonderful, quite frankly. It's it's the epistle that just keeps on giving, and um, I'm I'm looking forward to our time today and in the Word. Let's uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this glorious day. Thank you for this wonderful time of worship, and um, we we are so grateful to you that you have seen fit to save us, to redeem us, and to give us a new heart that enjoys singing the songs that we're singing, to, to praise you and to worship you and to adore you um, in song is a great privilege and honor, and we thank you for doing that for us. We ask you, Lord, that you would be with us this morning as we get into this important passage in Colossians, that you would help us to understand who we are in Jesus Christ, the wonder of our salvation, the magnitude, the extent the, the intricacy of it even in regards to how you have fitted us to serve you. We are overwhelmed by so great a salvation, and we rejoice that you are indeed the author and finisher of our faith. We rejoice that we are known by you. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Colossians chapter 3 We've been, of course, spending much time here in this passage and unpackaging the, the importance of understanding our position in Christ, our union with Jesus Christ. It is this important nexus, this tying together of the redeemed with Christ, grasp the significance of then living out the reality of that, that we are equipped, that we are enabled to do what we're called to do because we who we are in Jesus Christ. Um, this issue of sanctification is so important, and it's often misunderstood. People misplace and put too much emphasis on it with regard to it being a basis for their salvation. We've talked about the different errors that are associated with that perspective, and they are indeed dangerous, and they are assurance-robbing beliefs. But what Paul is telling us here importantly is that because of what God has done, because he has indeed fitted us with a new nature, that he has created us and made us new, that we then are becoming and are something that can serve and willingly be obedient and joyfully do so with regard to wanting to please the Lord, that gospel gratitude that's so very significant and important for us. We don't serve out of drudgery. We don't do things begrudgingly. We do them joyfully with a glad heart and through the course of our lives, we're being renewed in the strength to do that by the work and person of the Holy Spirit. And certainly, we look forward to the opportunities to serve Him in the body and elsewhere. And this is ultimately what Paul is driving these people to. He's doing this also as a basis to point out to them that because of who they are, they're able now to fight sin. They're able to deal with sin in their lives. They're able to say no to sin. And indeed, they want to say no to sin. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And you pursue righteousness. You're no longer slaves to sin, but you're, to use that metaphor, slaves unto Christ, slaves to righteousness, as Aaron reminded us earlier this morning. And so in Colossians chapter 3, let's pick up with verse 9. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new man the new self, 
who is being or which is being renewed to a true, a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So, now verse 12 is important. We're going to kind of reach into verse 12 a little bit today, but not in full. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So, last week we spent time in this important passage in verse 9 and 10 in Colossians chapter 3. And Paul here is, is using the language here in verses 9 and 10, in particular in verse 10, the picture of the old self and the new self, the old man and the new man, bearing in mind that there is no battle between the two. You are not a, 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 um, a, a Christian of two natures, so to speak. You're not uh, an old man and a new man in that, in that way. You are completely new creation in Jesus Christ. Now, we still struggle with sin, we still fight sin, but we have been enabled to do that, and in this new nature, we are equipped to live a life that is holy and pleasing unto the Lord. And indeed, we want to do that. That's the overarching now drive of us through the work and person of the Holy Spirit. And so, Paul here wants to make certain that this language is very clear. And Paul is also using this language to undermine some of the teaching of the false teachers that we're going to go back and reflect on here momentarily. Paul's point, of course, is that we are new humanity. This is Paul's anthropology, if you will, the, the, the study of mankind and drawing out the distinction between the two types of mankind, which are the unregenerate and the regenerate. There are those who have not been fitted, tailored by God with a new nature, and there are those that have been, and those are the redeemed of Christ. That is our great honor and our great privilege. We are clothed in a new nature by God. Last week in Genesis chapter 3, we looked at this powerful passage. Let's turn back there. Get your Bibles ready. You've got a lot of places to go today, so, so, so get, it, get it out and get ready. So Now, We looked last week at Genesis chapter 3 to help us to better understand the significance of the meaning of what Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. There's the picture of God clothing us, robing us, giving over to us, creating us in a new way. That's the language, the imagery that's being used. We see that same expression in Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, we have the account of the fall of, of Adam. And so, uh, let's then uh, pick up with, um, uh, let's go to verse 5, uh, or no, sorry, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So, they broke God's law. 
They, they violated the covenant that was established in chapter 2. And so God told Adam, of this tree you shall not eat. And he ate. And therein lies the problem. All right? Then in verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Right from the beginning, you see man attempting to deal with the issue of righteousness on his own, to cover his own sinfulness by his own deeds, his own work, his own doing. We have been fig leaf sowers ever since, and, and that's a problem. And a lot of people are resting in the fig leaves that they've sown. Lord, Lord, friend, friend, Jesus, Jesus, didn't we do great things in your name? Look at my fig leaves. How wonderful are they? And they're inadequate. And this is what happens in verse 8, in the balance of this chapter. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Shifting the old blame there. Lord, it's this woman. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. In verse 15, the proto-gospel, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then then, Then to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it were you you taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And in verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God clothed them. And here we have that amazing picture of God's grace and mercy taking care of the desperate need that Adam and Eve had because of their sin needing to be covered. And in the context of what's taking place here, we see that picture of what is foretold in verse 15, that there will then be someone else who will come and do all the things that Adam could not do and will serve as a covering for us. It will provide us with the righteousness that we need to be in God's presence as God did for Adam and Eve in the context of killing this animal. You have the shedding of blood there. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And then ultimately you have the covering and God not just throwing it to them in the bushes saying, here, put this on, but lovingly, graciously, kindly, mercifully clothing them. 
What a wonderful picture that is for us. What a powerful image that conveys. And so for Paul, in, in verse 3 of Colossians, or chapter 10, of, of verse 10 of Colossians 3, he is emphasizing that particular picture. This, this motif of tailoring, which the word in, 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 the, in the theological realm is sartorial, the idea of being tailored and fitted is important to Paul. And he sees it as a factor in the fulfillment of the creation mandate ultimately. The first Adam failed. The second Adam did not fail. We as the progeny of the second Adam continue then and are obligated joyfully to fulfill the creative mandate of multiplying and subduing with respect to what God has given us. And so what we see here is that God equipping his new creation in the second Adam to carry out the, multiple, the bountiful and multiply mandate that we find in Genesis. And we see it working, don't we, in Colossians itself. Paul is reaching into this imagery. It's woven throughout this epistle. Go back to chapter 1. In verse 5 and 6, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly what? Bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Even there, Paul gives us the picture of that monergistic sanctification, the consequences of which is our growing in the truth and our work in the mandate to spread the gospel, to proclaim Christ to all the world. Ultimately, Adam's task was to be in the garden, to multiply, to be bountiful, and to, to create and to bring forth a people who would glorify God in the context of that existence. But he failed. He failed miserably. But the second Adam doesn't fail, and he is now in the process of fulfilling the creative mandate that was given to Adam originally. He is multiplying and is being bountiful through the propagation of the gospel, which is about him. New believers coming forth, being clothed in Christ's righteousness, which is what Paul is talking about here. We are the progeny of the second Adam. And so this motif, this tailoring motif, is found throughout Scripture, and Paul is certainly pulling from that rich imagery to drive home who we are in Christ and why it is we are being renewed to the image of Christ being better equipped by the Holy Spirit to fulfill the creative mandate in all of life, in, in the metaphysical, which is the transcendent, the supernatural, our perceptions about and our senses of reality, philosophical, vocational, relational, which we'll see in the balance of chapter 3. What's amazing to me is that what's taking place is that Paul is incorporating the idea of the creative mandate and the transformative nature of what God has done, the clothing of God, God's clothing of us, enabling us then to do all the things that we're ultimately called to do as the redeemed of Christ. 
We see that in verse 12. I told you we were going to reach momentarily into that passage, but if you look at verse 12, so. So what? So because of what just what happened. So of just what went before. So because of who you are in Christ as created by God. So he says in verse 12, as those who have been chosen of God. Now, that passage is amazing. We're going to have a great time there. Holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. You see the change then that's coming out of this new man, this new nature. Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. What does that sound like? The fruit of the who? Not the loom, the spirit. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint. Look at the transformation. That's not how the natural man acts. That's not what the natural man does. That's not how people outside of Christ work. Look at the world. Do you think that's the case? Of course. We see that. So, so what Paul is also doing, though, here is, is using the imagery in in this verse, in chapter 3, verse 10, to address another error of the false teacher related to the temple, which Paul briefly addressed and which I touched on momentarily knowing that I was going to get here, so I didn't want to spend a lot of time on it in that particular passage because I wanted to make it work in the context of of this picture that, that Paul is painting for us. So if you go back, part of the error of the false teacher was a teaching, an erroneous teaching about temple experience. Go back to verse 18 of chapter 2. Paul says this, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and in the worship of the angels taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Now, in this passage, Paul is is drawing out one of the errors of the false teacher, which is basically communicating that you need to have the same temple experience that I had in order to be an illegitimate Christian. You need to have this particular experience. So what happened is that this false teacher, as we understand from what Paul is saying in 2.18, was stating that he had had a special vision and was claiming that this made him unique, special, a first-class Christian, and that those in Colossae and that the Colossae Christians needed to have this dramatic, charismatic experience in their new Christian faith in order to avoid being disqualified from first-class Christian status. And so this, this, this false teacher had some vision in the temple, some type of, of, of experience where he saw angels and a glimpse of the heavenly temple, and some type of, of, of experience that, that, that gave him some type of, of clout. But Paul is reminding these believers, that that error, that that is indeed an error, that they as the redeemed of Christ don't need to have a special experience. Christ is the new temple. 
and the Holy Spirit dwells within them. They are united to Christ, and we're going to look at that in a moment. But of concern to Paul is that in understanding who they are as fitted by God in their new nature, that the object of their faith is Christ and not their experience. Not their experience. The false teacher was telling the Colossi believers, you need to have this experience in order to validate your faith, in order to make certain that you indeed are a Christian. You need to have the same vision of angels that I had. You need to have the same vision of the heavenly temple that I had. You need to go through this rite, this passage. You need to have this experience. Sound familiar? That's most of what you hear today in the charismatic movement. Second baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, all sorts of other things. You've got to have an experience. But Paul is rejecting that, and what's important is that he's rejecting it on the basis of what God has done in us by creating us as new creation in Christ Jesus. Paul has been making allusions to the temple of Christ and the, and the temple of believers identifying with Christ to insist that Christians already already have all the temple experience needed for Christian existence. There is no more experience that you need. You're already in Christ. As we are in union with Christ, we experience and benefit from all that He is, which includes the new temple of God, Christ. Look at Colossians 1.19. Look what, look what the Word of God says about Christ. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. That's temple language. Where did God dwell before the new covenant? In the temple. What happened when Christ was crucified on the cross? What happened to the veil? Torn from where? Top to bottom. And so that was an abandonment. That was a destruction of that entire system. That was gone. There's now a new covenant. So for Paul... He's making certain that these Colossian believers understand that one of the realities of what God has done for them, as communicated in verse 9 and verse 10, this, this, this clothing metaphor that he's using, is that they now no longer need any experience because they are in the very temple that is Christ. Isn't that beautiful? That's wonderful. Look at verse, uh, let's see, 1... Let's look, look at verse, or chapter 2, verse 9. Paul continues to remind us of who Christ is. Verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. So he's decimating the teaching of the false teacher that's claiming that you have to have some type of experience, that what God has done for you is not enough, that Christ isn't sufficient, that you have to have all of these other things. This has eschatological implications too. If Christ is the new temple, there isn't going to be another one. There are those who hold certain eschatological positions in particular in dispensational premillennialism, that during the 1,000-year reign, 
that the Jews are going to be brought back, there's going to be a number of Jews saved, and that the temple's going to be rebuilt. No, it isn't. How could that be? I mean, honestly, how on earth do you take everyone back into that system? How on earth do you reestablish all of that's associated with that when you have Christ who said it was finished? The veil was torn. It's done. That's over. The writer of Hebrews clearly states that once and for all, Christ completed it. There's no need for more sacrifices. There's no need for more rituals. There's no need for anything connected to that. There's not going to be another temple built. Stop waiting for it. Stop it. Stop watching Israel. Get your eyes on Christ and his church, his bride. That's what Paul's saying. He's, he's wanting them to understand. Now, friends, you've got to appreciate the magnitude of this. God has, has fashioned and formed us in our union with Christ to be that in which the Holy Spirit dwells. That, that's unbelievable. I, they won't need, there's no, necess, no, no necessity for any type of rebuilding of anything. That, you, you can't do that. Christ is preeminent. Again, verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's dwelling language, that's temple language. And in him you have been made complete. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And that carries through to the very end. That does not change now. There is indeed a mystery to this. Look at 126, chapter 1. This is what Paul was explaining back in chapter 1. Let's go back to verse 25, the beginning of the sentence. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, which is to communicate to you what God's word says about what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. That's what preaching is about. This isn't a TED talk today. All right? Verse 26, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, his eschatological people, his eschatological church, his kingdom dwellers in the body of Christ. That's what's going on right now. God has made us and has fashioned us to be that in which the Holy Spirit dwells. That's the mystery. We now are incorporated into this entire temple motif. We are pictured as in union with Christ, and indeed we can even boldly approach the throne through Jesus Christ. So, this is all under, now, this is what's remarkable. Understanding all of that 
begins to form your mind around a principle that says, well, wait a minute. Wait, okay, I, I get it. God made Adam. Adam failed. He was supposed to be that which would create a race of people that would give glory to God in the context of dwelling with Adam in the first temple in Eden. That didn't work. So a second Adam comes, and he now is the temple. He completely does everything that God requires. God saves me, applies his finished work to me, and enables me and equips me and turns me into a vessel in in which the Holy Spirit dwells. You don't need all the stuff the false teacher is giving. You don't need to look forward to another temple being built. No one does. God has already done it. God has already done it. And so this is what Paul, and when you understand that, when you understand the magnitude and the wonder of that, that begins to cause you to think, oh, wait a minute, this is amazing. How, how can I not live for him? How can I not serve others? How can I not demonstrate the fruit of the very spirit that indwells me? And Paul tells me that in the context of understanding it, verse 10, he says, and have put on the new self which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. There again, there's that Genesis language. Image created. I'm, un, I'm growing in my understanding of this, and as a consequence of, of understanding who I am in Christ and, 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 and engaging in the things that are pleasing to the Lord. So, this is also communicated, of course, in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Well, let's turn there for a minute. We might as well get nowhere else to go. <laughs> 3.16. Look at this. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, and you might as well go ahead and look at 6, 19 as well in that same book, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, so you can put your finger over there. Verse 16, chapter 3, 1 Corinthians, do you not know that you are a temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, now, Paul uses that as an argument to encourage the Christians in Corinth to deal with their sin. He's saying this is inconsistent with people who are, who are image bearers, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who are images and models of the temple. So deal with your sin. The same can be said over in verse 19 of chapter 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? And so, so Paul, so that language in chapter 10, or of chapter 3, verse 10, speaks to this very idea, this idea of God fitting us, tailoring us, making us new creation, the consequences of which we are now what has just been described. The temple of God, the Holy Spirit dwells within us in union with Christ. And as a consequence of that, we are enabled, we then live out the reality of that faith. 
of that conversion. So an understanding of who we are in Christ and that the Holy Spirit is working in us to further conform us to the image of Christ by and through which our conduct will be transformed to be more Christ-like as expressed in how we live and how we think and how we love and how we work, which is what? The balance of chapter 3 is all in fulfillment of the creation mandate which Christ has fulfilled. Another important aspect of this, of this tailoring imagery is connected to the temple as well and that this new set of clothes, this new nature, fits us to perform faithful, priestly duties in the new temple. Another reason why the new experience of the false teacher is unnecessary. So let's, let's think about this for a minute. So let's go back. Let's go back to Colossians chapter 1 for a minute, and let's be reminded of something that Paul did. Colossians chapter 1. So if you go back and look at verse 10 for just a minute on chapter 3, you will see that Paul makes reference to the word true knowledge. So we've put on the new man, which is being renewed to a true knowledge, a full knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him, okay? We're, we're, being, we're, we're being transformed to reflect the reality of our conversion by, by, doing this, by, by living out the reality of that conversion and their conduct and our speech and all the things that go along with that. So in verse chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says this, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit. There that is again. There's that Genesis creative mandate, bountiful, multiply. Be fruitful and multiply, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. All right? So Paul there is praying that the reality of what this new man is equipped to do is, is registering ultimately with these Colossae believers as they demonstrate the reality of it in what they are doing, which is God-enabled. We can say, and, and, and again, we're not mindless robots. There is cooperation on our part with the working of the Holy Spirit. The Holy, as Jerry Bridges says, the Holy Spirit instills in us a desire to obey, but we obey. The Holy Spirit doesn't obey for us, right? And even in our salvation, we believe, right? But God enables us to believe. That's important. That, that prevents a lot of error that can creep into, into some areas. So, when we see this language in, in, in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, again, Paul is, is also reaching into the temple metaphor again. He says um, in, in verse 10, in every good work, bearing fruit 
in every good work. Now, Paul then again is reaching back into the idea that Adam was a priest, that Adam in the garden was fulfilling a priestly role. And what Paul is driving home in all of the epistle, basically, is that we have been created as end times, eschatological Adamic priests who minister then in the second Adam's temple. Now, now think about this. As Adam was a priest in the temple, in the garden, Eden is a, is a, is a temple, we'll talk more about that, we now are in times Adamic priests who are ministering in the second Adam's temple. That requirement hasn't stopped. Just because Adam failed doesn't mean that what God required ceased to exist. It's all completed in Christ, and we are in Christ. This is what Paul is saying. So, we know this, we are clothed in the new man by God as he did with Adam. We know that from Genesis chapter 3, new clothes equal new man, new nature, all right? The new clothing imagery also carries a priestly background. A background of priestly clothing is suggested by Paul since believers have already been identified as temple builders, the good work, in chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. Believers bearing fruit in every good work were identified with the temple in Christ, as we know from chapter 1, verse 19, and chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Now, in the garden temple, Adam served as the first priest. Eden is the garden temple, the unique place of God's presence, the first holy sanctuary where God communed with Adam as a priest. Look at this. Genesis 2.15. Genesis 2.15. Let's see what God told Adam. Genesis 2.15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to what? Cultivate it and keep it. Cultivate it and keep it. Now, what's interesting is that the language cultivate and keep in the Hebrew is also translated serve and guard, which is exactly what the priest did in the tabernacle and the temple. That same exact word is used to describe the function of the priest in Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, and chapters 8, verses 25 through 26. So Adam was a priest in the garden, communing with God. And that same metaphor translates over to us in the context of our new creation. And as we understand that and have a comprehension of who we are in Christ, we see then what God intends for us. As Adam would have been in service to God in the garden in a priestly manner, so too we 
having been put into Christ, are doing the very same thing. We are living out the reality of that. We have been made by God to do that. We have been equipped by God to do those very things, just like Adam was. And indeed, this picture of of being engaged in this temple work as being fitted by God to do that is even carried out with respect to other pictures that are painted in Scripture of this this idea. And so the the point of the allusion in Colossians 1, 9, and 10 is that Paul is praying that God would fill believers with the Spirit in order that they would build their ethical lives skillfully. As verse 10 makes clear, where he says that he he wants them to walk bearing fruit in every good work. Every good work is an illusion referring to temple building. The believers bearing fruit in every good work is part of the process of them contributing to building up the body of Christ, which, as we know, is the new spiritual temple. Now, look what happens. Look at this. To better understand the picture and the imagery, turn to Exodus chapter 31. Look at the language. So what Paul's doing, that he is reminding, again, he's, he's got a Jewish audience. This, this language would have been meaningful to them. The picture would have been meaningful to them. Bearing fruit would have carried the idea of the, of the, of the Genesis mandate. Engaging in good work, the picture of of, of engaging in something like that would have brought to their mind the picture of those who worked in the temple. And this is what we're going to see here by looking at Exodus. Genesis, or I'm sorry, Exodus 31, verse 2. Now, let's go back to 1. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, Look at verse 3. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding and knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship. What is Paul praying for in Colossians 1.9? That very same thing. He is communicating that as God called craftsmen to build the tabernacle, so too he fits us and equips us to be engaged in the work of those who are involved in the temple, to live out the reality of that. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all kinds of craftsmanship. To do what? To make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze and in the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. We see the same picture painted again for us in Exodus chapter 35. Exodus 35, verses 31 and 32. Then Moses said to the sons of Israel, this is verse 30 of chapter 35, then Moses said to the sons of Israel, see, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and in knowledge and in all 
craftsmanship. God is the one who equipped the craftsman. God is the one who called him. God designed and made specifically a man to do this very job. That's exactly what he's done for us. That's how he's equipped us. And this is Paul's point. So when Paul uses the language that we see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, we have a better understanding of what it is that he's talking about when he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There's that language again that we see from Exodus. This language is also in 1 Kings chapter 7 with regard to the building of Solomon's temple. It also can be found in Isaiah chapter 11 that we read this morning. The same idea. Verse 10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so, for Paul, he's driving home the point that you don't need anything that the false teachers are offering. You don't need any experiences. You are already the temple of God in which the Holy Spirit dwells, and as priests within this temple, like Adam in the garden, you have been called to fulfill the mandate, and you have been equipped by God to be engaged in the good works that he has ascribed to you for the establishment of his kingdom and the propagation of the gospel so that the word will go forth and people will be saved, fruitful and multiply. That's the mandate. That hasn't stopped. That's who you are. In Jesus Christ. And so for Paul, he wants the reality of that to be driven home in a very vivid, vivid way. He will say then in verse 12, the reality of this so is this. He chose you. He made you. He equipped you. Why? To put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, just like he did with Uri back in Exodus to build the temple. He specifically designed him, made him, gifted him to be one who could do exactly what God wanted in that temple. That's what he's done for you. That's the reality of your conversion. He's made you a spiritual, a spiritual craftsman, if you will. He's fitted you. He's instilled in you the very thing that you need in order to live out the reality of your conversion. That's an amazing picture. And what happens then is that those people who are now in the new temple, well, they love their wives different. They love their husbands different. They treat their children different. They respond to the government differently. They engage with their employer differently. They have an impact on culture that's completely antithetical to that of the world's because We are temple dwellers. We are craftsmen in the temple. We are ones who have been equipped to carry out the mandate. And the mandate hasn't stopped. And so we are are part of the process, contributing to the building of the body of Christ, which is the new spiritual temple. And so for us, we need to make certain that that is a reality in our lives, in our minds, with respect to understanding that we are the offspring of the last Adam, who has begun to carry out the Genesis 128 mandate, on which Colossians 1, chapter 15 through 20 elaborates, and by our identification and union with Christ, his progeny, that is Christ's progeny, us, are part of the beginning, 
new creation and are continuing to carry out this Adamic commission, which has not been successfully fulfilled throughout the ages until Christ came. That only makes sense. The ongoing failure to carry out the mandate pointed to a latter-day humanity who would finally be obedient to the primal commandment. That's wonderful. God has made for himself a people in Christ who can carry out the mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. Live for Christ. That's the consequences of our salvation. That is why we grow in holiness. That is why we desire to be people who love and express our love for Christ and our obedience to him. I hope that these pictures and these metaphors and these imagery from the Old Testament and the New Testament help you see the consequences of the salvation that God has so graciously provided to you, the result of which is people who love each other and love Jesus Christ. As we'll see in verse 11, there's now no division. There's no distinction. We're all in the temple. We're all together. Christ is all and in all. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? That's why we don't become unhitched from the Old Testament. I need those pictures to help me understand the reality of the wonderful grace that God has extended to me as demonstrated by Paul in this passage. I trust that's a reality for you. If you don't know Jesus Christ, there's no trick. It's simple. Call upon the name of the Lord and he will save you. It's very direct, very straightforward. And I trust that the Holy Spirit will work in your heart in that way. If you need to talk to anybody about that, I'd be happy to do that. Anybody else here would be willing to do that as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word today. Thank you for this wonderful description that you've given to us, this beautiful picture of who we are in Christ, that we have been clothed and fitted and robed just like you did for Adam and and how you've placed us in the temple and how you've equipped us to be in the temple and to carry out the tasks that are associated with the new temple that is Christ. And that we are still under this wonderful mandate to be bountiful and fruitful and multiply through the propagation and proclamation of the gospel to proclaim who Christ is to all those in the world to fulfill that. We ask, Lord, that you would instill in us a greater desire to know these things, to have this true knowledge, to see who we are. We rejoice that you continue to renew us, to transform and conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you.